Well, Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for this psalm. God, Jesus, who, who calls himself the Good Shepherd, uh, tells us that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him and that they hear his voice. Uh, so God, as we, as we look at this text this morning, we, we pray that we would hear the voice of Jesus, that we'd hear him calling out in love, that we'd hear him calling out our names. Yeah. God, we ask that your spirit would, would do a work. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this last Wednesday, I'm going to open my Bible. It's a good place to start. Here we go. Uh, this last Wednesday, uh, there was a, a matchup in Major League Baseball, a highly anticipated, very exciting matchup. It was between the Angels, who uh, have a horrible record, and the Royals, who have an even worse record. Um, so it was a game that literally no one was excited about. But I, I watched it, and um, one thing that was somewhat exciting was that uh, for the first four innings of the game, the Royals pitcher, a guy named Brad Keller, was pitching a no-hitter. So he threw a no-hitter through four innings. And uh, at the top of the fifth, the Angels announcer made this like terrible faux pas. See, what he did is he called out the fact that Brad Keller was throwing a no-hitter through four innings. You're not supposed to do that. But he did that so that he could then tell a, a fun little tidbit that apparently it was Brad Keller's birthday that day, and there's only one person in all of Major League Baseball history who had thrown a no-hitter on his birthday. It was a man named George Mullen who did so on July 4th, 1912. Poor guy had to celebrate his birthday with America. He's going to be overshadowed his entire life. Anyway, uh, July 4th, 1912, uh, he was a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, and uh, he no-hit that day, the St. Louis Browns. Fun fact. Well, the announcer, in his uh, eagerness to share that tidbit, broke one of baseball's unwritten rules. Right? He called out the no-hitter. And this is, this, is, this is serious business. This is part of like baseball dogma. You do not do this. Uh, if a guy's throwing a no-hitter or, uh, or a perfect game, especially a perfect game, uh, if you're observing something, especially as it gets into later innings, you'll notice that a pitcher is like off in a corner by himself. Uh, people avoid him so as to avoid any mention of the fact that, that he's doing something significant. Well, top of the fifth comes, the announcer uh, makes the announcement that, you know, no hitters going on through four innings. Well, first batter, Kurt Suzuki, gets up, hits a single to left field, no hitter, over. And what's funny is the announcer immediately recognized what he did. It's like, oh no, I called it out. That's my fault. It's like, that's not really how that works, right? Okay, so this is baseball doctrine. It is a silly, silly superstition. It's obviously bunk, but. We all have little superstitions about our days, about our lives, don't we? And what is a superstition at root? Well, I think ultimately a superstition is an attempt to control circumstances. Right? We cling to superstitions. When we cling to superstitions, we are clinging to a belief that we have a degree of control, a degree of power that we don't actually have. Our words don't have the power to ensure or deny certain outcomes. 
Our little actions don't have the, or our little rituals don't have the power to do that sort of thing either. But why do we do this? Well, because life is uncertain. And that can be really hard for us to wrestle with. Now, athletes tend to have more numerous and ridiculous superstitions than most people. But many of the things that we do in order to control circumstances, they really are, ought to be classified as superstitions at the end of the day because they can't actually make an impact. But we do them anyway because, again, life is uncertain. It can be hard for us to deal with that. Well, this passage gives us a much better way to deal with life and its hardships and its uncertainties. Instead of false assurances through rituals, in Psalm 23, we are told one of the characteristics of God that can give us what we need in order to face whatever uncertainty, whatever difficulty comes our way. And what is that characteristic? That God is our shepherd. So we are going to spend our time together this morning unpacking that wonderful truth. So our, our passage begins with these beautiful words in Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So I think it's worth noting before we dig any deeper, who is this passage first about? What's the first person named? The Lord. And notice something important about or maybe unique about the way that the Lord is written up on the screen. Notice that it is all capital letters. Well, this is significant. Throughout the Old Testament, when you see the Lord marked out in all capital letters, it's not just a title, it's not just a designation. When it's in all caps, that is a stand-in for God's covenant name, Yahweh. So David here in this psalm is telling us that, that the Lord is our shepherd, but it's not just God in the abstract. It's not just a title that we're called to relate to here. It is a person. It is Yahweh who reveals himself to us. And not only is this God's personal name, this is God's covenant name. This is the name that is associated with a promise. Again, this is not God in the abstract. This is the God who is. The God who is a person. The God who relates. Who wants to enter into relationship with us and draws us to himself. And who is this God who is the Lord? He is, according to David, my shepherd. My shepherd. When David wrote this psalm, he didn't declare that God was a shepherd. He didn't declare that God was the shepherd. He said that he was my shepherd. And this shows us the love and the intimacy with which God wants to relate to us. And God wasn't just David's shepherd. Friends, he is your shepherd. And this reality has many implications, and I want to I point out a couple of them. The first of which, though, isn't particularly positive. If God is your shepherd, what does that make you? You can say it. A sheep. It makes you a sheep. Now, we have nice images of cute Gentle little lambs, that's nice, it's good. But a sheep is a whole other thing. 
Why? Well, for starters, uh, sheep aren't particularly intelligent creatures. Uh, there's no such thing as a sheep trainer or sheep tricks. Uh, you can't teach a sheep to sit or to roll over because um, they're not smart enough. Like, they can't figure it out. In fact, uh, sheep lack such, they, lack, they, they are so unintelligent that they have been known to walk directly into open flames. All right, so sheep aren't particularly smart. They are also defenseless. They don't have fangs or claws. They can bite you, but it's not going to do a whole lot, and they can't outrun you. So they're not smart, they're defenseless, and they're also dirty. A cat can clean itself, dogs <laughs> attempt to, uh, birds have bird baths, bears will take dips in rivers. A sheep, if he gets dirty, he stays that way. Sheep cannot take care of themselves. In one commentary I was reading, uh, it pointed out how, unlike goats, who apparently are quite independent, sheep depend on their shepherd to find pasture and water for them. Without a shepherd, a sheep is completely lost. Sheep need their shepherd. Well, friends, the same is true for us. And this is a reality that we ought to come to terms with, but I think it is actually a reality that when we deal with it, when we wrestle with it, it can provide us with a degree of comfort and freedom. I was reading a, a piece this week from a writer named Oliver Berkman. Uh, he's got a, a bi-monthly newsletter called The Imperfectionist, which I think is a great title. And in this particular installment, he extolled the virtues of asking the question, this is the question, what if the situation is even worse than I thought? He says we should contemplate that every so often. But here's the point that he's making. He writes, we can't ever get free from the limited and vulnerable and uncertain situation in which we find ourselves. But when you grasp that you'll never get free from it, that's when you're finally free in it. Friends, the Bible tells us that we are sheep. And as such, we are vulnerable. Even worse, we are helpless. We don't have what we need in order to take care of ourselves. Sure, we can fake it for a while, and, and fun fact about sheep, well, that's what you're here for, uh, sheep apparently like camels can go extended periods of time, days even, without consuming any water. And then when they find it, they can drink up to nine liters at a time. It's a, a lot of water. A sheep that hasn't been led beside still waters can seem as though, at least for a time, that he's doing all right but he will reach a breaking point, and a sheep is never going to find water on his own. He needs a shepherd to get him there. We, too, can fake it for a time. We can maybe fake it for a long time, but we will never make it on our own. We need a shepherd. And the good news here, and this is the positive implication, the good news of this text is that we have one. The Lord is our shepherd. Therefore, we don't have to make it on our own. Therefore, we shall not want. And look at the second part of verse 1. I shall not want. And think for a minute. What do you want? This is actually the first question that Jesus asked two would-be disciples in John chapter 1, verses 37 and 38. 
The context of these verses, uh, John the Baptist was out uh, ministering among the people, and he had created quite a stir. He had a, a huge following. But as soon as Jesus came on the scene, John immediately wanted to, to take the attention off of himself and point it to Jesus. Later on in John's gospel, he says the famous words, he must increase and I must decrease. Well, John in chapter 1 was saying some amazing things about Jesus as he was walking by, and two of his disciples then looked at Jesus and they, they kind of transfer their allegiance. They begin following Jesus instead. But before they get any, before they get very far, Jesus turns around to them and he looks at them and he asks this question, what are you seeking? He asks them basically, what do you want? And this, friends, is a fundamental question of discipleship because we are desiring creatures. We are driven largely by our passions. The Anglican reformer Thomas Cranmer famously said, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We like to think that it works in the other direction, that we are you know, reasonable, rational creatures, and that we make informed decisions, and that's why we choose the things that we do, but no. <laughs> in reality, we are, we are much more inclined to be driven by our passions, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So again, think, what do you want? What is driving you? What is your heart captured by? Is it a particular vision of family? Right, the 2.5 kids, dog in a house with a white picket fence. Uh, is it a particular vision of wealth? Right, being able to afford the bigger house, the nicer car, the more exotic vacation. Is it a... Is it <laughs> Maybe not even a particular vision of wealth, just like making it in Southern California, which is a feat in and of itself. Is it making a difference? Right? Having a job that's going to leave a lasting impact, doing volunteer work that you know that matters. Maybe it's adventure. Right? Living a life that's interesting and then having the Instagram feed to confirm that. Or maybe you're just in a stage of life where you want to feel okay. Health isn't even on the radar. You just want to not feel miserable. We want all sorts of things. And I think most of our desires can be classified into two major categories, right? We want significance and we want security. Our quest to make an impact, to be seen, to be known, to be appreciated. What is that? It's a quest for significance. We want to know that we matter. And the quest to be safe, to be healthy, to know that our loved ones are going to be okay, that is a quest ultimately for security. Now, there is nothing wrong with wanting those things, desiring to matter and to know that we're going to be okay. But nothing in this world is able to provide either assurance. But do you know what can? Our Good Shepherd. We matter because we're His, and we're going to be okay because He will take care of us. We may not get all of the temporal things that we want by following Jesus. Right? We may not have the family that we pictured, you know, the dream house, the job we envisioned, but we will have what our soul needs, namely Him. 
So consider for a moment, what are you looking to? What are you looking to to shepherd your soul? What are you looking to for significance and security? Friends, the Bible confirms, life confirms over and over again that those things can only be truly found in Jesus, who calls himself the Good Shepherd. In him, we can find satisfaction. And we see that in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 together. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Think for a minute. How many times have you been in a situation where you just did not know where to go? What was the good, the right, the righteous path? Well, friends, this is where our shepherd leads us. We often don't know which direction will provide life, but our shepherd does. And in him, we can find holistic restoration. Verses 2 and 3 give a sense of total fulfillment, both physical and spiritual. At the opening of verse 3, he restores my soul It can be taken in multiple ways. On the one hand, it can refer to uh, physical or psychological restoration. And there are a few instances in the Old Testament where the verb translated restore here is used in that way. On the other hand, it could picture straying sheep brought back to the fold, forming a picture of repentance. And that's what we have in Psalm 60, verse 1. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry Oh, restore us. But I don't think that we need to choose one over the other. God, our good shepherd, both both retrieves and revives his sheep. And not only does he retrieve and revive us, he sets us on paths of righteousness for his namesake. Again, we often don't know where to go, but our God knows where to lead us. Now, if we look at verse 2, this sounds fantastic. Because where does he lead us? He leads us into green pastures by still waters. Who doesn't like green pastures and still waters? But the picture changes a little bit when we get to verse 4. There we read, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, here we are confronted with the uncomfortable truth that though God can and often does lead us into refreshing, renewing, beautiful places. He is no less in charge when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. As the biblical scholar Derek Kidner points out, the dark valleys or ravine is as truly one of his right paths as are the green pastures, a fact that takes much of the sting out of any ordeal. And why would knowing that God is leading us take the sting out of even the darkest valleys? Well, I want to point out two reasons. One, if God is leading us, we can know that we aren't there without reason. Even if we can't see it, we can trust that our God has a purpose. The writer and missionary Elizabeth Elliot, um, who was well 
well acquainted with grief and pain. She talks about a practice of British shepherds in which they will take sheep one by one and throw them into a dipping trough that's filled with a sort of antiseptic liquid. The shepherd has to completely submerge each animal, holding, making sure that its, uh, that its eyes, ears, and nose are under the surface uh, for a, a length of time. And if the sheep try to get out of the dipping trough, then there are sheepdogs there to bite and snare, to really snap at and bark and get the sheep back in. Right? The full length of time needs to be spent in that antiseptic liquid. But as terrifying as an experience as that would be for any sheep, without this periodic treatment, they would become the victims of parasites and disease. The shepherd does this practice not to be mean. He does it for the good of the sheep. And Eliot's commenting on that practice was reminded of the image of Jesus as our good shepherd. And she writes, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted. And he didn't give me a hint of explanation. As I watched the struggling sheep, I thought, if only there were some way to explain, but such knowledge is too much for them. We too have a good shepherd who is committed to his sheep, that we often does things to us that frighten us and that we cannot at the moment understand. Friends, God does not lead us into the valley without reason. And in the valley of the shadow of death, we often experience a closeness, a communion with God that we miss in the green pastures. As one biblical scholar says, the darker the shadow, the closer the Lord. The second reason that understanding that God is leading even in the valley, the second reason that that can take much of the sting out of our experience of it, is that we can know that our story doesn't end in the valley. We can say with the psalmist, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We don't need to be afraid when we're in the valley because our shepherd has what he needs in order to lead us out. Our shepherd leads us into the valley, but as you can see here, he, he's armed. Right? He's packing. There are two implements here that are mentioned, right? the rod and the staff. The rod was a club that was worn at the belt of a shepherd, while the staff was a, a walking implement that could also double as a weapon if, if needed but it was primarily used to, to guide and control the sheep. And these were the traditional tools of the shepherd, and they were sufficient to fend off a sheep's natural enemies. Now, God doesn't have a literal rod and staff, but he has proven himself sufficient over our biggest enemies, namely sin and death. Jesus defeated sin. By coming and living a perfect life under the law, he submitted to every single one of its standards despite facing all of the temptations that we face. Jesus embodied the perfection that we all desire. The sin that haunts us, the sin that ultimately makes us addicts, because that's what sin does, doesn't it? That sin had no power over Jesus. 
as the writer of Hebrews declares, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus faced sin head on and he triumphed over it. But he didn't just face sin on our behalf, he himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Despite not having sinned himself, he took on the penalty that our sin deserves. He died in our place. But friends, death didn't get the final say. As Peter explains, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus conquered what ultimately is our greatest fear, He conquered death by submitting to it and then being raised to life. And if we are united to Jesus, then these words about Jesus from Paul can apply to us. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Despite the fact that we will all likely face death, death no longer has the ultimate say. Because we too will be raised with Jesus. So then what is there for us to fear? The good shepherd was the one who was willing to lay down his life for us so that we could have comfort and peace, so that we could have victory. Now starting in verse 5, the imagery of, of Psalm 23 switches a bit. We go from seeing God primarily as a shepherd to God as a host and a friend. So in verse 5 we read, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. We go from a tone of surviving a threat in verse 4 to a tone of triumph in verse 5. And notice how there is triumph even in the presence of enemies. David wrote this psalm at a time when Israel, the the nation over which he was king, was surrounded by literal armies who wanted to see Israel destroyed. But he knew that he could trust God despite that reality. And And that in God, he wouldn't just survive, but he had the potential to experience overwhelming joy. The enemies for David didn't disappear, but they were trivialized. Now, for us, reading this psalm in light of Jesus, the picture is very similar. Sin and death, they have been defeated. But while those enemies don't really hold any power, they haven't gone away altogether yet. But despite their presence in Jesus, ours can be a life of joy and feasting. And look at the welcome that we receive in verse 5 from our Good Shepherd. He invites us to his table and he anoints our head with oil. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. It was hot, people sweat. And so a generous host would often greet his guests by by putting fragrant oils on their heads. This would give them a sort of like glowing countenance and it would also make them and the room smell really nice. But this this was an excess. This was something that the host would lavish on the people that would come to his table. And in the host's presence, the cups overflow. Friends, that is the treatment 
that Jesus says he wants to give us. We're not just sneaking in. We're not just, you know, getting scraps after the supper. No, he, he brings us to his table. He wants to anoint our heads with oil. And he wants our cups to overflow. He doesn't simply provide us with what we need. He provides us with abundance. Have you ever had a, a dinner-type experience that sounds like this, where it's just lavish, where you're just taken care of by your host? I remember when I was in, in middle school, my family took a trip to France. Uh, my, brother was, uh, my brother was in college, and he uh, lived in France for a year. He, he studied abroad there. And uh, where he was studying, he was close to some of, our, uh, some of our relatives on my mom's side. So my mom's Italian, and she had some uh, uh, relatives that moved from Italy over to France. So they're expat Italians living in France. Um, and my brother got to know them during the time that he was there. He was only about an hour or so away from them. So when we went to go visit my brother, uh, we, we spent a significant, uh, a, a significant amount of time with uh, my mom's family. And when we got there, we were treated like royalty. It was amazing. Like, Italian hospitality is, is a thing to behold. And I was there, you know, early, I was late middle school, so I was an early teenager, which meant that I was growing a lot, and so I was like a bottomless pit. And um, I did not dispel any notions of American excess. Like, the, it, was, it was like a beautiful experience. I would think about food, and behold, it would appear before me. And I think they were super intrigued with like, my ability to eat, and I was super happy to eat as much as they would provide. But that, that, that picture is, is often what I think of when, when I see you know, the, the feasts talked about in Scripture, right? where there's just joy, where people are giving and receiving, loving each other, demonstrating hospitality. Like we, we don't just sneak to the table. Like God invites us to a feast. He lavishes His goodness over us. Now, my experience in France was amazing. It was lovely. And we were family, but we were also guests. So we were there for a season. We were there for a time, but there was the expectation that at some point we would leave, at the bottomless pit would depart. We would go back to our own homes. But the picture that we have here at the end of this psalm is so much better. Let's look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. We're not just invited to a feast and, and we get a good time and then we long for that over and over again. No, God invites us to make His home our home. The place of feasting is the place where we get to live, where we get to dwell with our shepherd forever. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, to eat at someone's table, it created a, a bond of mutual loyalty. Right? It was an act of intimacy. But it could also be the culmination or the enactment of a covenant. This means a lifelong, committed, promise relationship. This is what we see in Exodus 24. And, and Jesus brings this to the church in the Lord's Supper. The meal that is pictured here, it's not just an invitation to a banquet, it's to a life with Him. This is a, a covenant meal. And one of the indications of that is the word that's translated mercy here is actually the Hebrew word hesed. 
which is often translated steadfast love, but it's also, it could also be translated as covenant faithfulness. So what is going to follow us all the days of our life? It is God's commitment, His faithful promise. I mean, that is a beautiful image. So again, it's not just an invitation to a meal, a great experience. No, this is, a, this is an invitation to a life with our shepherd. And Jesus reiterates the promise of this text in, in John chapter 14 when he tells his disciples, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may it be also. Again, Jesus invites us to make his home our home. And that concept of home is so powerful, isn't it? There's no place like home. But it's also so elusive. I've been thinking about that uh, recently. Um, you know, just the, the desperation to have a place to call home and, and how that can often feel so fleeting. Uh, the reason I've been thinking about that is because my, my parents are, get, are in the process of selling my childhood home. And uh, it makes sense, it's understandable that they're doing it, but I had in the back of my head that that house would sort of be in my family forever. I don't know why I thought that. I think it was just wishful thinking, due in large part to the fact that it was in that house that I first met Katie uh, in middle school, which is crazy. Um, that, was, that was the first, the very first place that we met. And then when we started dating later in high school, that was kind of our, our home base where we'd you know, meet and go other places. That was the place where we had our first kiss uh, after watching The Office. It was a very romantic <laughs> endeavor. It was just me, Katie, and uh, Michael Scott, you know? That house is significant. There's lots of wonderful memories attached to it. But the reality is it's not my home anymore. And it hasn't been for 16 years. And if I tried to, to make it my home once again, it just wouldn't quite work. It would not be the same. Right? And isn't that true? You have an amazing experience at a place where you feel really connected for a, a time or a season, but then you go back and you can never really, you can never really go back. And the older that I've gotten, the, the more I've, I've felt the sense that life is really just one transition after another. But that's because we're not meant to make this world our home. God, in His grace, gives us good gifts. He gives us wonderful things, glimpses, tastes of home in this life. But those things are ultimately meant to whet our appetite for the real thing. The day when we get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the thing. That's the real gift. That's where our longing is, and that is what God promises to us. That's, I don't know, that's the place where we can truly say, once we're there, I shall not want. So consider for a moment, where are you trying to make your home? What are you looking to for significance and security for the fulfillment to that longing. 
Friends, it is good for us to desire those things. I think those desires are implanted in us by God, but they are not meant to be satisfied here. He gives us those desires so that we would look to Him, our Good Shepherd, in whose presence there is fullness of joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, by your Spirit this morning, we ask that you would help us to declare that you are our shepherd, therefore we shall not want. Lord, we we thank you for the reality that you are our home, that you are the fulfillment of all of the things that we long for, the, the true place of significance and security. God, this morning we ask you to forgive us for ways in which we have tried to make this place, our temporal home, our true home. Lord, we ask that you correct that, that you, that you correct that tendency, that you would move in our hearts and draw us to you. But God, this morning to you, it is hard not to be overwhelmed with the goodness of these promises, right? the beauty therein. God, God, help us to believe. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. And God, help us to see our lives in light of that. Help us to know that even when we're facing dark valleys, hard circumstances, that that's not the end of the story that you're leading us and that the place where you're bringing us ultimately is a place of joy, a place where goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Help us to cling to that, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.